you know what's interesting? Did you ever read The Godfather of the Book by any chance? No, by Mario Puzo. Yeah, Mario no. Puzo. No. Genius. Um, the Godfather book is so interesting. I mean, especially after watching the films. These are the longest films, the longest mainstream films ever made in terms of time, right? Uh, three hours. One is over three hours. One is just under three hours. And they covered a lot, but but the detail in the books, and there's a whole character, but if you, if you remember in Godfather 2, the Al Neary, who is a former police officer who works as one of the capos for Michael. Does this ring a bell to you, no? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Al Neary kills one of the guys on the steps and the, the, the mass killing thing. Oh, anyway, yeah, sure. he, in a police uniform. But we don't know from the movie at all that he used to actually be a police officer. He's a former police officer turned mobster. And so that un- so that, that has some meaning. It's, there's a whole interesting story about Al Neary in the book. I haven't read the book in about 30 years, but I, I do remember parts of it. Um, I read the book after. I've seen the movie four or five thousand times. That's yeah. not hyperbole. We are we are so. We're, I don't even know where we are now in this conversation. We are so far afield. I, I have no idea where we are. You're on a field somewhere. Is that a, is that a metaphor? Good days. I've got my good days. I've got my good days. This ain't one of them. You never played baseball as a child, did you? I never even caught a ball as a child. My my father never <laughs> threw a ball to me. That's so sad. You never had any of those traditional male bonding experiences. I, I don't necessarily think those are actually, it's sad that you didn't. I think it's funny that you didn't, knowing your father and you. But I don't think it's particularly sad, because I don't think that particular like male bonding athletic thing is the only way to have a relationship between two men. Sadly, our culture still does, I think, in many ways. Yeah, I, I would have taken kind of, pretty much any kind of relationship by the time it was all said and done. You know, it's interesting. The only time I ever played competitive sports ever in my whole as a in a in a in an organization or in a league was when I was four, four and five. I played what was called biddy league basketball at you the pay, YMCA. Played competitive basketball at, at four. four years That's old. That's correct. And the baskets were eight feet tall. And it was at the YMCA on Little Santa Monica, by right by, around the corner from Beverly Hills High School. That was the, sort of the, the highlight of my athletic life. I scored 30. I had the league record in, for scoring. I scored 38 points in a game. At f- <laughs> That's true. I'm not making, I'm not making that at, up. At four years old, four and a half. Yeah. yeah. I did. Yeah, I basically we're, shot we're really, every time. We're really going time. back now. Every time I had the ball, I basically shot it. And I was a really good shot. I couldn't do anything else, but I, I could hit a, a jump shot at four. That was the peak of my athletic prowess. You know what's funny about that is that my dad, who was never athletic as an adult, and we, we played catch a few times. I mean, not like a regular. It wasn't like, oh, let's have a catch. It wasn't like a field of dreams kind of catch. But we, we played catch a few times with a football or baseball. Not, 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 it wasn't a main part of our interaction. Didn't he play but, tennis? Or am I confusing your father with Dustin Hoffman? Well, they both they went to high school together, but they my dad did play tennis for a while. In fact, there's a picture of him from I want to say it was his 40th birthday party. It was a surprise birthday party. His girlfriend at the time, Sydney, if you remember mm-hmm. that name, oh, of course I do. Um, his girlfriend at the time of many years um, threw him a surprise party at ranch at Roxbury Park, and he showed up. I think he thought he was going to play tennis, 
which he didn't. I mean, my father actually also played racquetball for a period of time at a racquetball club on Roxbury and Pico. He mm-hmm. knocked out his two front teeth actually once. He had to have them replaced. But that's a whole other story. But anyway, I've completely lost the thread here. But tennis. Oh, the thing about tennis. Yeah, the thing I was going to say this roundabout way is my father was actually a track star in high school. He was the, the, the he ran the fast one of the fastest hundred yard dashes in California, the state of California in the in the fifties, and then he just stopped. It was never a part of you know his experience. He it wasn't like like Kevin's dad was very into te- was a huge tennis player. I mean, t- played tennis almost every day back when we knew him. Mm-hmm. And now he lives in Palm Springs. It's Kevin's dad and plays golf and tennis. And his mom too. His mom was I don't know if you remember you you didn't you weren't really friendly with Kevin in high school. You never went to his house, as I recall. No, but you know that my sister went to high school with Kevin's mom. Yeah, it's a very small world. And but Kevin's Kevin t- tells ahead. me that his that his mother was quite a beauty. Oh yeah, I can imagine that because when we knew her and she was a bit older, but she still she had sort of classic, you know, good good looks. She was a lovely woman. Um, my memory of her mostly was in tennis clothes. She wore tennis clothes like a hundred percent of the time. Those kinds of those kinds of uh, you know women we knew moms at the, in that era mm-hmm. who always wore tennis clothes. So this skirt. was before. Before, like, Lululemon existed in pants. Yeah, it was, the, like, the tennis skirt and the shirt yeah. and sometimes the visor. Mm-hmm. She was always in tennis clothes. And they had a tennis court at their house. Or it was like a, like a paddle tennis court. It was small. She was always in tennis clothes. It was, it was, it was fun. I mean, she, they were athletic. I, Kevin's, my point is, Kevin's parents were athletic. They always, I always thought of them as they played tennis together all the time. They're always, and Bob, too, Kevin's dad, was always in that, like, that Bjorn Borg Fila-looking stuff from that era. If you remember that look, he always had those kind of, like, Fila, what, what are they called? Jogging suit? What do they call that thing? Yeah, that, sweatsuits. That, sweatsuits. Yeah, sweatsuits. Sorry, yeah, I couldn't think tra- of the term. Sometimes people call them tracksuits. No, I think they call them sweatsuits in the Bose. And he, Kevin's dad always had, like, the Fila and all the different kinds of looks. That's my memory of it. It's very funny. They, of all the friends I had in high school... I think of Kevin's parents as the most sort of active. You know, that word active is a word. Active is another one of those words you apply to older people generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't it's say very, like, a, like a 25-year-old, oh, he's very active. Yeah, it's, you, it's euphemistic. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, what's the word? What's that? Um, uh, spry. Mm-hmm. Spry is a great mm-hmm. word to describe oldness when you don't want to say someone's old. Yeah, yeah it, means, it, means, it means aging well. It means aged and well, yes. <laughs> or aging well, depending on how you look at it. But anyway, you know what I was thinking of today? I went out this morning at about, I left the house at 6.56. I went, uh, I got in a bus. I went down to a coffee shop that's in a neighborhood here I like quite a bit. That I haven't been to in quite a long time. And I sat outside for a while. I'm fully vaccinated. And I sat outside today and I thought, uh, I thought about these people walking by me at the coffee shop. Some wearing masks, some not. I thought to myself, you know what I have no patience for anymore in life, which I didn't necessarily have years ago, but today I especially have no patience for. You know what? Einster, Xander, Neubaden. Just like, yeah, I don't know what, their, their, their music just no longer, you just cannot, you have no patience for that. Anymore. I assume those were words you put together in some sort of coherent sentence that I didn't understand. But um, a, a, a lack of kindness toward others. I have so little patience for people who display a lack of basic human kindness toward others. Mm-hmm. And kindness comes in many forms. But I think of these people who, who get upset at the mask thing, who rage at people, who, who have actually become violent at people in the last couple of months in our culture. People have shot people, people have beaten up people with their fists, with hammers, for, about masks. And I think, what kind of human being is a person who thinks... I'm not interested at all 
in the health of the people who live in the world around me ever. And anything that helps everybody, including myself, uh, that causes me a minor inconvenience but doesn't affect really anything and is a public health measure that supports all of us as a culture, as a society, what kind of piece of shit human being makes that political as opposed to an act of kindness toward others? Go ahead and respond. Did you ever have patience for a lack of human kindness? You said, no. well, I don't have patience for anymore. Like, like you ever had. Did, I never have had patience for a lack of human uh, kindness. Yeah. I will say, though, my, my tolerance for it and my frustration level at it is greater now than it's ever been because, uh, and this is, a, this is a political thing, but again, as I used to say when we were kids, the one, what was the one thing you told me last week or a couple weeks ago I said in high school? Never let anybody know what you're thinking. Is that what I said? Something like that? You, you used to say... Don't. What you're feeling? No, no. You used to say, never let anybody know that you don't know something. Oh, yeah. That's that's totally like a direct Godfather reference, basically. But but this thing is more about... I totally lost my train of thought. Who are you? What are we talking about? Why am I here? <laughs> is this iced tea or a cybacillacillacin? What's the, what's the name of that drug? The psychedelic... Uh, psy, what's it called? Psilocybin. Did you read the article in the New York Times? It was yesterday, the day before, that says that that and what's the other one? MD, MDMA. Uh, they're about to theoretically become legal drugs for, for and significantly increased use by psychiatrists. That's a well. I didn't. I didn't read coming that in the New York wave. Times, but I've known that for the last six months because I'm because of I, just the circles the, that I'm in. And I'm interested the in drug, the drug group, use circles. No, no. But there's a group called Maps. Um, which uh, was... MAPS? Yeah, MAPS. Um, is that an acronym? It is. And it's uh, the guy who started it, I've uh, just blanked on his name. He looks like something from the Middle Earth. But he... Uh, is his name John? Uh, do- do- Dobkin? Steve Dobkin, maybe? Is that his name? Anyway, he... Um, Julie Dobkin? He almost, almost single-handedly um, is responsible for this. I mean, he has championed... For 30 years, he's worked to make this... Um, mm-hmm. uh, basically, I've read making about this like guy. medicine, medicine-assisted therapy, legal, and um, it's going to happen. It'll happen uh, if it doesn't happen this year. It'll happen next year for sure. They're very um, close. Let me ask you a question. I know you're not a psychiatrist; you don't prescribe medicine. But if you were a psychiatrist, would you feel an ethical responsibility to try the drugs out before you prescribe them to others, so you had some sense of what they were like, or no? No, there are too many of them, and um, it's interesting, though. You, I, but you wouldn't take, but no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that for a thyroid medicine. You wouldn't if you didn't have a thyroid problem. You wouldn't take thyroid medicine to to know what it's like. It just it just struck me though. It's interesting. Like significant amount of drugs are prescribed by doctors who never use them, who have no personal experience with them. It just not, it just struck me. It was just something that came in my head just now. I yeah, like, but they're, they're they're therapists who've never had any significant uh, cl- like w- cl- what you consider clinical levels of anxiety or clinical levels of depression or yeah. So you know, so that mania or right. you know any number of things. Right. No, of course. But that suggests the question: Can 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 one ever understand somebody else's experience? Well, you can never entirely understand it. Right, but it, but yeah, okay, obviously. I, I don't mean that in the broad, gen, most general way. I mean that in a more specific way. It's just interesting, like, we prescribe, people are prescribed drugs for mood disorders and for all these different anxiety disorders that are very impactful and very significant and, and uh, very powerful from people who, who have no experience with the drug. That's why I always think of drug prescription is voodoo it's kind of a voodoo kind of work i mean like well it is a little bit of voodoo but another way of saying that is it's guesswork 
I mean, yeah, you, it's you, guesswork. You are, you are just guessing. And, it's, and just, it's interesting re- relying to on your client's feedback. I have two clients who've done medicine-assisted therapy, and then they've raved about it. Um, I, I think this is a big, big, big deal. Um, and um, I, I think more and more people are going to do it. I, I would, I would try it. I would try that myself. Yeah. No, I, I think it, it could be very meaningful too. And especially anecdotally from the stories I've heard from people who've tried it or from other therapists I've talked to who have, have engaged with people who have tried it. It seems to be very, very meaningful and positive effects on people's experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These are long sessions, you know, these are like six hours. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Well, you know, it's interesting. It makes me think about like marijuana, right? Like now, there was an article I was reading this morning, I think it was this morning or yesterday, where, you know, all these conservative states are voting to make medical marijuana legal, almost all of them. Like there's been a complete cultural shift on marijuana in terms of uh, its its healthy benefits for people who are struggling with cancer and all kinds of different maladies, all kinds, from depression to cancer. I mean, all kinds. I mean, it's just interesting how that shifted so dramatically where literally 10, even 10, 15 years ago, uh, the, these same people were saying, oh, it's a gateway drug and it's horrible and it'll kill you and you shouldn't do it. And and now it's like, even the people who, who are completely spent their whole lives thinking and being taught it was this, you know, heroin level drug are now seeing the impacts of it on people they know. I mean, I think this is what made the change, by the way. People, conservative people in their 50s and 60s who have cancer, smoking weed and feeling better. Yeah. Yeah. Grandmas. Yeah. It's funny because the analogy, one would think, was like the evidence supports this being helpful. Right, mm-hmm. all the evidence supports this being helpful, but in almost every other area of our politics, evidence is meaningless to that the same group of people. Yeah, I can't I can't really explain that to you, except that there's <laughs> except that there are enough people. I, I I think maybe maybe this just speaks to you know if you reach a critical mass, no matter what your beliefs as a politician, eventually you will just cave to the number of people who want something. Or you'll just get out of politics. But if enough of your constituents want it, it's not about, I I don't think it's about evidence. That's my point. I don't think it's about evidence. Yeah. Except, except, I mean, what you said intellectually sounds great, but, but the evidence of what you said is the opposite. In all, in all the polling done in like a lot of these conservative districts, the people want all kinds of the gun control is very popular, even in conservative districts. Um, reasonable, what they consider reasonable gun control, like background checks. Background checks are almost universally pop, universally popular in America, even in those districts where people love their guns. And yet, the politicians in those districts consistently vote against them. Okay, well, because we'll, they say we'll it's add, a Second uh, Amendment infringement. Okay, well, I'll add this to it: if enough people want it, and you can show politicians, conservative politicians, that they'll make money from it. Then you, then it'll pass, then it'll change. Yeah, you can't, you can't make until I think until you until enough conservative politicians recognize that I, one of two things that either there's a way to make money on gun control or that they it is costing too much money not to do it. I don't think that it's, uh, you know, and that's why this recent study that came out, uh, I mean, it's really, there's only one, I think, and it just came out on the costs of gun violence, mm. but, um, and not just in terms of human lives. 
Um, I think when we get when that when we have more studies that show how much it's costing, I think you'll actually start to see some of that start to turn around slowly. Yeah, I totally, I completely and utterly disagree with what you just said, but I, I think it makes sense if one was being rational and logical. I, I think though the evidence suggests that that's not even close to being true anymore. I, I think the uh, the conservative mind in this country is is what's the word for crazy in a nice way? Insane, over the deep end, off the cliff. Yeah, bonkers. I mean, not this Arizona recount thing is the evidence, is the greatest evidence I think of it all. Uh, these, by the way, mail-in balloting, you know, the thing that they've railed against and that Trump railed against in Florida was a Republican initiative 10 years ago. Republicans were all in favor. It was their idea. They loved it. They thought it was going to bring help their voters, the older people who are most, you know, conservative, tend to lean conservative. It was a huge boon, boon for them. And then Trump decided it was bad. And the whole thing is literally just shifted overnight. And now it's these these recounts, these fake... Re I mean, I think America's done. I mean, I've said this before, but I really do think the American experiment is done. And the evidence is this Arizona thing. Because what the Arizona thing has done is they've taken ballots, which used to be sacrosanct, which used to be, you know, you know, not touched by human hands, except within the purview of the election officials and, and, and all these kinds of rules and regulation. They've removed two million ballots from just one county, given it to a company that has no experience with ballot counting, uh, no experience with private, no vetting, no uh, required rules or, or of evidence of, of, of storing things in a certain way that are, you know. And there are laws, by the way, about ballots not being let out of the hands of election officials for, I think, like 22 months after an election. There are actual laws about that. And in Arizona, the, the Arizona Senate just said, eh, fuck it, we're going to give it to this company. By the way, it's just a conspiracy theory company run by a guy who, who created all these conspiracy theories with no history of, of ballot counting ever. They've never counted ballots before. And they've taken ballots now, and they could be changing them, they could be marking them, they could be doing anything, and then they're going to come back and say, oh, hundreds of thousands of ballots or whatever number of ballots were actually Trump ballots and not Biden ballots. And there'll be no way to disprove that. Of course, there's no way to prove it because they, they took the ballots out of the view of, of reporters and, and proctors and people who are supposed to monitor these things. I mean, that's the end of democracy. That literally is the end of democracy. Yeah, there is no it, democracy. It's, yeah, it's literally, literally yeah. the end of, of giving people a vote, um, which is democracy. But I don't understand how, what you, how my point about money and the gun lobby... That was like a weird left turn you took. Well, no, I think you said you disagree with me a hundred percent on what I said. I'll tell you why. That if it if you can combine a number of people and proving that it'll either make the money or that they'll lose too much by continuing to support it, I think that used to be true. That's a hundred percent wrong, and here's why. And then you went into the thing about vote counting, and I don't. I'll tell you why. Because the vote counting was the evidence that the 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 mindset that used to support what you said, which was a conservative mindset. One could argue a liberal mindset in many ways too. An elected official mindset was very common across the spectrum in terms of the money. But that mindset, I think, has has been replaced by complete just insanity, conspiracy theory, and the idea that that the conservatives believe that any time a liberal gets elected, it's no longer valid. They've just negated the whole idea that votes count. And whether it costs them, doesn't cost them, because again, there's evidence to suggest that this, all these anti, these voter suppression 
um, bills will affect Republican voters, too. I mean, they'll disproportionately affect people of color and poor people, but they also will affect Republican voters. And, and there's cost to that in some of the races. There's significant cost to that to the Republicans. They don't care anymore. This is, this is, this has become a cultural issue now. This gets, you know, fake made up culture war has taken over completely the Republican party, I would argue. Completely. And the voting thing, which used to be the thing that saved us and 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 suggested that we were still a, a viable democracy republic, you know, democratic republic, is gone now because now that they've allowed this, just wait. The next election cycle, anybody who doesn't agree with the vote, they're going to say it was stolen. They're going to ask for a recount. They're going to demand their laws. And by the way, the worst part of all these voter suppression laws, I don't know if most people know this, they're not that you can't give food and water to people in line, which is just, just one of the most insane and stupid things, right? It's not those obvious things. And it's not that there's only one drop box now in a county of six million people where there used to be, you know, 50, and now you have to go to one spot and it has to be monitored 24 hours a day where before you could just put in a box. And not that there's been no evidence, there's been no evidence of voter fraud. The most dangerous aspect is that in all these voter suppression laws, if the 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 party in power doesn't like the results of the vote, they can literally remove and replace the uh, voting uh, election officials who count the vote in any county. The state can do that and override the county voting officials and replace them with their own people. That is again. The complete opposite of of democracy. So yeah, it's now, it's, it's mind boggling. I, I mean, I, I can't say anything else about it that you haven't already said, except that it makes it it's literally sickens me. But I, you know, I, I don't have anything to add to that. It's 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 shameful, and I can't. I don't. I don't. And I feel it makes me feel hopeless and powerless. I, I don't. You know. Yeah. So this goes back to what I started with. This is a, this is a broad and a, a long winded way to go back to the topic of kindness. Because that was a kind- really long winded way to to come back to the topic. Of yeah, kindness. I'm very good at the long winded, the, the <laughs> long and winding road. One well, today, well, today you are. Uh, well, historically, I think I would suggest that I have been quite good at that. Okay. I go back to the thing Mariana said about me, like when she was 10, you know, you'll use three words when one will do. Mm-hmm. I am very good with the, the flourish. Um, but yeah, I, I think the democracy is done. And so, and I think part of what's lost in that, because I think for democracy to work, right, for, for people to hear another point of view and accept it as different, but also acceptable, Right, and not to demonize the other p- person giving the view just because their view is different than yours requires a certain kind of basic kindness, right? I think kindness is kind of a foundation of the, if you define kindness as I'm defining it for the purpose of this conversation as as respecting the the humanity and the decency and the idea of another, right, and engaging in dialogue or discussion or interaction with them that is respectful that to me is the basic definition of kindness right it's not the kind not the kind of kindness where like you see a woman who or a man who an older person who's struggling to get across you say oh let me help you although you can't do that anymore which is kills me because i used to do that kind of shit all the time but you can't really go off to somebody and offer to help them with their your arm anymore you can't touch people anymore publicly no, uh, I, you, you I may be able to start doing you, a little more I think now. You still can, but yeah. Well, okay, over the, I, let me tell you something. Over the last year, though, during the the really intense height of the pandemic before the vaccines, 
nobody wanted strangers to touch them. They were terrified of it. Uh, there was a lot of terrified um, in human interaction on the streets. I mean, most people were inside anyway, but when you're outside, there were, you, you, I mean, part of that is because you can't see anybody's face, right? Because the masks obscure. I mean, this is one of the things lost in the mask, although even though I think masks are vital and they have the evidence supports using them even now, even after the vaccines. And I just read something about the vaccines, the masks might become like a seasonal thing we do culturally. Like during the 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 big flu or you know um, COVID season now, if it mm. stays, because we're not going to reach herd immunity, that we start using them like in the winter, in the fall, whatever, and then don't have to use them in summer. That's something that was discussed. Mm. I could see, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know that we've had almost no flu this year, right? So the masks have really worked mm-hmm. on I preventing the spread of. I didn't know that about flus. Yeah, about yeah, it's flu. been very little flu this year. Because since the since we started using masks in that period where we, everybody was masking up, the flu was like you know very very the transmission was very small because we were blocking all that airborne transmission. Yeah, and I think we, somebody mentioned this to me. My daughter mentioned to me like the Asian countries have been using masks for years. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. Jap- what what are their flu numbers like? I'm I don't know, but I'm betting they're lower. I mean, in Japan, mask wearing has been very common for a number of years, specifically because of the idea of not spreading stuff. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I heard of, uh, I I don't know, I don't remember who said this. It was very funny. Comedian was talking about. John Wilkes Booth. No, no. He was was talking about the Asians that you see, uh, you know, who, in this country, Asians who wear, this is well before COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, who bring that practice, who have brought yeah. that practice of mask sure. wearing um, to this country, you know, and he said, you know, seeing somebody who's like, okay, I get it. You're smart. You're a doctor. You don't have to show off by wearing a mask <laughs> everywhere you go. Yeah. Oh yeah. The underlying idea being that's thoughtful and smart and what somebody who's knowledgeable about medicine would do. <laughs> what is, that's what's happening you, to you over you, there. Can you hear that? I don't. What is what it? Is, You've been having weird. Are you? Are you psychotic? What's happening? You've been having no, weird sound. Are you hallucinating? No, my, something is ringing inside my head right now, and I think. Oh, it's, that doesn't sound like auditory hallucination to you. What? What are you talking inside, about? Inside my phone, but I thought I tried yeah. to turn it off, but my ringer's not on, so I don't know what it is. It's some weird thing. Anyway, um, okay. Turn around, walk outside, turn around and spit three yeah, times. Knock, yeah, knock on the door, ask, et cetera. So, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I don't know that I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I take your point about kindness, but I, I, I actually, I, I think there is more to kindness than just being respectful, having open dialogue, allowing for, you know, an exchange. I, I didn't say there wasn't more to it. I'm saying that's the foundation of it that we've lost as a culture, I think. Because I kindness I, I, comes... I don't know that that's the foundation. You don't? What See, I, I, I don't I know. Think, I don't, what do you I think it is? Know. I don't what do you know think it is? if it's the foundation. What do you think the foundation I don't think you can exclude is? from... I don't think that you can exclude compassion or... Um, well, I don't think uh, so either. Or from, from that... But you, well, you didn't include it. As foundational to kindness. Okay. I mean, I didn't use the word, but I would say what I was expressing were were aspects of compassion. I mean, those are all the things that go into this broader umbrella definition of kindness. Yes, because if if you come from a position, if you situate yourself in a position of kindness as a, as an ident- as a value then compassion is one of the companions that comes with it right decency yeah. is another one of the value companions i would say that are part of kindness if you're doing a flow chart right those those things but 
but I don't think we can have. I think the I think the biggest problem we as a culture have gotten away from the the problems we have as a culture exist mostly because we've gotten away from this idea of kindness I mean, as, a, kindness, as a core value. Kindness is a practice which holds, I think, at its core, um, the best interest of the other. Yeah, it is, it is any exactly. it is any practice which holds well said. At, at its core the best interest of the other. Um, and you know, and I was really lucky because my mother taught me about kindness every day. She was so kind and generous to people. You're saying her, in both word and deed with her spirit and her in her practices. Yes, she was just that was that was a model for you to. Yeah, to, she was just a good. Yeah. She was just good. You know, she just she taught me everything I know about goodness and kindness, and she showed interesting. it to me all the time in the way she treated other people. I think I, I took a lot of that from your mother, too, in my experience of your mother. One of the things I don't remember ever hearing from your mother was sort of disparaging words about other people. Like, I don't remember her attacking other people or saying really I, negative things about other people. I love that you Even if she was upset. Because I'm now that you bring it up, I'm not sure I have, which is different than her. I mean, she's she was she could be very judgmental. Yeah, and she got annoyed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so she was she was um, you know her ideas of right and there she had very very um, narrow. Um, yeah, I was specific. Gonna, yeah, I was going to say binary ideas about what's yeah. right and what's not right. Kind of old right school. Yeah. Um, and you know she would be easily disgusted by someone's behavior, you know, right. very, without really trying to understand it and get yeah. to the sort of yeah, the yeah, root yeah. of it. And yeah. look at what that person's wearing, right? And, you know, she, you know, she would, you know, or she right. would. All right, or, so she wasn't so kind. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but in the but that's but the way she treated people. That's right. Because I think you can be kind. I can be in my car. And, have, and someone could cut me off and I could, you know, yell without, you know, I could just go, look, this fucking asshole, you know. But right. the way I, but when I get, if I get out of the car, the way I comport myself and talk with that person, if we need to have a conversation, I can be kind. And that's different. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a nice way to describe it because we all have human reactions that can be full of anger or frustration or even rage sometimes depending on the circumstance. But yeah, it's interesting. That, that's the difference yeah. between felt experience and behavior. Yeah. There's a difference between how I feel and how I act. Right. I can't, I can't, it's, well, there it's, can be. There, there well, doesn't right. have to be. Well, right. But, you know, I, I'm not even sure, you know, I'm not even sure if you can even ascribe the word kindness to a feeling. Feelings, yeah, I don't can't ascribe so. that to a feeling. You right. Know? It's, it's, in the, it's in the action. It's in the, it's in the way we interact and the way we perform life versus the way we think about life or feel it internally. Yeah. And I use perform in the, pos in the way of yeah, just yeah, yeah. sort of that's what's done in the, in the world. Yeah, I, yeah, right. Not in an artificial way. Remember when, I didn't see it because I haven't watched the Academy Awards in 15 or 20 years, but I remember when Mickey Rourke won his Oscar for yeah, I didn't The, see the Wrestler. And my mom always would ta speak to me the day after about the Academy Awards. Did you watch the Oscars? Did you see Mickey Rourke's <laughs> acceptance speech? No, I didn't. Yeah. He thanked his dogs. Can you believe that? He thanked his dogs. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know? And, and I remember very vividly saying to my mom, you know what, mom? Actually, I can't imagine that. Yeah. You know? I'm guessing that he has, he fell in some pretty hard times in his life, and I'm guessing that his dogs... Yeah. Um, may have been incredibly helpful. My dog saved my life. And if you've ever had a dog that saved your life, literally or spiritually, um, yes, I can imagine that he would 
be thanking his dogs. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally get that. And this, this, I mean, this reminds me of where our politics are right now, or our, excuse me, (laughs) trouble speaking, where our politics are right now, because people are constantly demonizing somebody for saying something without any curiosity or context to it at at all, because it's easy and it's quick and it gets them money, quite honestly. It's a fundraising tool used by Mm -hmm. people on both sides. But that is the most, it's so frustrating. I mean, it's obviously frustrating to people like us, right, who believe very much in context and lived experience and and that there's a story there that people tell that's, uh, you know, about their experience that you have to hear to understand sort of for as a road toward understanding. Right. As opposed to just list, taking language out of context and and attacking it, that yeah. drives me nuts. Yeah, unless unless anyone think that you know I'm, uh, you know, I have some kind of superhuman ability to you know be kind. Let me just do for people the rec- think that. Let me Who just say. That? Let me just say for the record, I think Mickey Rourke's a fucking freak. <laughs> I think that dude. I think that dude has just gone off the deep end. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know uh, what's happened to him. But that it, is he still alive? Yeah, he is really off the deep end. But um, he was really good as Rocky, though. He, that was a totally different dude. Oh, different guy. Sorry, yeah, never mind. Completely different dude. <laughs> oh my god, I wish I had some of that. What's the name of that thing against Cybacillin? Psilocybin. Psilocybin. But, but if I were with Mickey Rourke, I. Yeah. Guarantee you, I would be kind. You know, it's interesting. I watch people. I, I mean, I used to do this all the time. It's funny. I sat. I think I'm talking. I'm interested in all this today because I sat outside today for a long, longest period of time. I think I've sat outside in a year, and it just reminded me of so many things I used to love. It just reminded me of the world and of watching people and how interesting it is, and how sad and how exciting and tragic and joyful and all these things it is to watch the way people interact and to and to just be curious and always wondering. Like seeing people either behave, you know, thoughtfully with kindness or aggressively. Oh, I'll give you an example. Three days ago, I went to the the best bakery over here to get a baked good. And they have a system now where you you wait outside and then there's like tape marks every six, you know, feet. So people know where to stand. Uh, And then... When the person moves in inside off of the number one, which is the first, you 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 take their spot, and everybody moves up a spot, right? It's a system that many places have implemented over the last year to keep us all safe and to give it some structure and order to it. And it seems very reasonable and very smart and very thoughtful. So I'm I'm in the spot right outside the, the door to the to the bakery, not you know outside. And a guy comes up behind me. He's about three feet behind me on my left. Now the the little yellow tape mark is to my right uh, uh, joining the wall adjacent to the wall that goes down that way and he's on his you know texting whatever and, and so my you know and, and again i'm one of these people that pays attention is very aware of my surrounding is what's going on and so i my first thought was oh maybe he's never been here before he doesn't realize the line is over here and also when other people start to come this is all the thought i had in my head before i said something other people start to come they're going to go stand on that yellow spot and he's going to be either get cut or he's going to be frustrated and so i so i turn around to him and i gently say sir i don't know if you know but the the line goes this way over here where the little nothing he's like there's no reason in hell I need to go stand on that fucking line. Nice. So I just, you know, I mean, I've I've matured in the last decades. I just turned around and I muttered to myself internally, 
oh, well, that's not the reaction I was hoping for. I was just trying to help, and uh, he was just basically an asshole to me, a lack of kindness. Yep. So five, So what happens, by the way, just to prove my point, five minutes later, a couple other people come, and they go stand in the spot in the line, and then the guy goes and walks and you know tells them, oh, I'm next, and he goes and stands in that spot after people show up. But when I said it, just to be nice, to let him know what the rules were, because we're in a COVID time, it's helpful. And I said it in the nicest way, and I didn't say it with judgment, or I didn't say it with disdain. I just said, hey, I don't know if you know, but then, you know. Um, and he just told, basically told me to fuck off. And then he did it anyway, because he, he you know, but he, he, his first reaction to me was, fuck you, who are you to tell me what to do? Yeah, it's being an asshole. Yeah, just being an asshole. It's like, nothing annoys me more than that. Especially, you know, you you. Here's the thing: a lot of people wrote articles this year. A lot of people expressed on podcasts and in the world, like, wouldn't this be? This is a great opportunity for people to really recalibrate the way they engage in human interaction, the way they think about others, and with this bring this is an opportunity for us to come together. And it's been. It seems to me, in so many ways, it's been the exact opposite of that: polarization and people like this fuck, yeah. who's basically like, "Fuck you! Don't tell me what to do." Yeah. What I, happened to the bringing us together? I don't know. If I live to be a thousand, I, you know, which I won't. Uh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah. I, I will never cease to be amazed by, by people's disrespect and, uh, and, and lack of kindness. Not, not everybody. There's a lot of people out there. No, no, not, no, I'm not saying everybody's that way. I'm saying it's a huge problem though. Yeah. Because culturally you see it, you see it in, in the world. You see it on TV. You see it in argument. You see it, you see a complete just lack of respect that other people hold a different view that you may disagree with. But it, we've demon, we've demonized the other people who are holding the view now without any interest in understanding or trying to come to some, you know, I don't love the word compromise, but some kind of shared value system that allows us to make a shared decision about yeah. anything. But, you know, where does that, you know, where did that person learn that that was okay? Right. Where did that's that person the, learn that that was okay? Yeah. that's. I would love to know that. And I would love to talk to that guy. And in the old days, I might have engaged him in a deeper conversation, not in an offensive way, but in a, an attempt at curiosity, you know, to try and understand more of where that comes from. Because I, I go back to the thing I used to say when we were kids, and, and I think this is true. And I think this sort of suggests this idea of context all the time. It's like, no five-year-old ever said. Sometimes, look, sometimes looks are enough. That's what, you, <laughs> that, that's what you used to say when we were kids. Well, at the time, that felt right to me. Oh, okay. Um, but that was masking a, a deep, a, a traumatic uh, inner life of loneliness, isolation, despair, and suicidal ideation. So, oh. sure, we'll go with that. Oh, all right. What was the other thing? What, what did you? What were you going to say? So, I told my daughter the other day that I spent the first thirty years of my life thinking about killing myself all the time. She's like, "Well, you never said that, but I kind of had an idea." Huh? Mm. <laughs> that's, that's good to hear. <laughs> and go. she never checked in. Never said. Dad, are you okay? Well, I mean, she was only one in that period of my life, so not for thirty years. She wasn't one. In my first thirty years, she at the end of that, she well, was only one. How could she have an idea? How could she have an idea that you? you That's what I'm saying. As a one-year-old, one -year -old, she would never have had that idea. Right. Okay. <laughs> what did you ask me? You said, as I used so anyway, to say I when we were Nikki. kids. Oh yeah. What What did I used to say when we were kids? Sometimes looks are enough. <laughs> 
That's I'm not sure I actually said that, but it I is. might. I mean, it sounds I remember, like something I, I might have said. I remember vividly. It impacted who I became as as a person. We used to. You used to God. stop in front of any reflective mirrors, surface. Yeah, in those days, any I reflective like surface. I don't like them now. A mirror, a building that had a glass, anything. You would stop yeah. and look at yourself and fix your hair, and then occasionally you'd say, "Sometimes looks are enough." And I felt so inferior <laughs> that I and and it. I never looked at mirrors, and I never thought I was attractive and always felt like, oh, you're the good looking one. And I was not. Yeah. That, that, it's interesting because that idea in any uh, best friend dyad is always like everyone has like, I'm this and the other guy's the other thing. Like it has to be, one has to be one thing and the other guy has to be the opposite. Whether that's I'm the funny one and or I'm the good writer. And he, you know, it's interesting how we, we conceptualize that, how we've been taught that. Like we can't have multiple positions of meaning. It's always like he's this one and I'm this one. Mm-hmm. It's it's very damaging. I mean, yeah. obviously, right? I didn't. I had no sense of of my own attractiveness until much later. In your twenties, you came into that though. Yeah, it's when you started to wear jewelry. You started to have an individual sense of uh, your connection to women. You know, all of those things. I think. Yeah, I mean, I came into that um, late teens. No, no, yeah, late teens, maybe around 20, 21. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's interesting. But again, it goes back to this why people think you're a musician, because you started wearing the cool, sexy jewelry, and that just <laughs> upped, that upped your, ide- your sense of personal identity, your sexy identity. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. When you started to feel sexy, you started to feel good looking, you started, you, you started to wear bracelets, you started to wear, you know, earring, you started to wear jewelry. Well, I started to inhabit what felt authentic to me. Yeah, yeah I'm saying, but that that mm-hmm. identity around your sort of feeling powerful mm-hmm. and attractive brought these different elements to you that make people think you're a musician to this day. To this day. <laughs> to this day. And have you ever actually played an instrument? No, I convinced my mother when why I was... Why not? When I was, I, I, I'll tell you why. I convinced yeah, tell me my why. mother when I was, I was lazy. <laughs> Nobody would attribute that word to you as a teenager, but anyway. I was when it came to... No, I know. I'm when just it saying. came to... Uh, Perception is not reality, and yet it is. Studying music. Mm-hmm. I try, I took a couple guitar lessons. Uh, I had I'd taken quite a, quite a lot of piano lessons, and I convinced my mom when I was like 11 or 10 or 11 mm-hmm. to stop. And, you know, and, and, and I remember vividly saying to her, I'm, you know, mom, I'm just, I'm not practicing. I'm just not. I mean, I just don't think you should, I mean, you know, right? Because you're spending the money and I'm not practicing. Does that make sense to you? I, I mean, I just don't want you, you know, and I look back and I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, right. Wait, yeah, what I the know. fuck were you thinking? Why would you say I like, know. oh, okay, honey, you're right. No, you say, sorry, you just, you're going to keep saying, you'll thank me later. Right. Now I'll give my left ball to be able to play piano. I know, we all, we all do. God, I'm just think about it. I took piano like for six months when I was, I mean, six or seven and I remember, I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but I didn't practice. And my mother was like, okay. I, I mean, that's what happened. I don't remember the, any conversation around Yeah, that. and I struggle with that as a parent because when I hear Dahlia say she yeah. does or doesn't like something, I'm like, well, I don't want to make her do something she doesn't want to do or she doesn't like doing, you right. know? And I, re- I feel like that's a very delicate balance. I don't know. I think so, too. It's not so simple because because I do believe that 
just because you start something doesn't mean you necessarily should finish everything you start. Some things you start, they don't feel right, and you stop because they're just not right for you. That's not true mm-hmm. of everything, but finding that balance as a parent with young children especially is very challenging. And knowing what what's right, as if there is one thing that's right, there isn't. But, I mean, how, do you and Jennifer have different views on that, I wonder? No, we both we talk about it. it. We both struggle yeah. with it. It's hard. I mean, Mariana took violin when she was really young. I don't even remember the F5 or 6 or something. She took it for a while, and then she wanted to stop, and then so she took piano afterwards, and that was it. And then she sort of taught herself to play the guitar. Her mother played the guitar, so it was sort of cultural, I mean, familial. Um, she can still play the guitar, but uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, Jen- well, Jennifer and I are both... One of the things we have in common is we're both lifelong learners. And mm-hmm. she so, so Dahlia watches Jennifer's... Uh, Jennifer's picking up her guitar again she's teaching herself guitar again she's sitting in mm. front of guitar lessons like a you know video guitar lessons uh-huh, youtube and, um yeah i mean that's the difference though today by the way also if you want to do something self-directed you can in ways that didn't exist before like you can you can literally learn anything online if you if you have the the desire to you it's it's yeah. achievable yeah that's very different than when we were kids like if we had that, that option maybe it would have changed our experience of it maybe yeah. it would have been more fun to engage with you know i don't know i'm going to share something with you and i, I don't want you to laugh okay i'm not going to say anything. but this goes to my my sort of being a lifelong learner thing this thought crossed my mind the other day i thought i maybe i wonder if i could find a really like a a different kind of math class that would be a corrective experience for me. Like maybe I could find, maybe I try to take a, a math class from somebody who's a really creative math teacher, and I, maybe I could actually understand math in a way that I've never been able to. And that doesn't make me want to laugh at all. I mean, it, it it brings up a few questions, like what kind of math? I mean, math in general is a, is a is not a thing. It's a huge thing. Like what do you when you say maybe you want to have a corrective experience about math? What kind? Is there a specific math? Well, you know, I'd I'd, I'd want well, I'd want to start slow. You know, long division. You know, you know? <laughs> you, 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 you. Uh, so probably I probably like maybe algebra. I mean, that's when that's when it first started to go south for me. And the question I ask would be, why now? Like, why? You, you, you still feel some kind of deficit that you want to correct emotionally or practically or something? Well, I have this concept of myself as I'm bad at math. Because I am. But, but, but that's, you know... Well, I mean, I, that's but, a but, incredibly but may, relative thing. But, exactly. But maybe, I'm, maybe there's no such thing. I mean, Jennifer's sister, who's literally a rocket scientist, says there's no... She doesn't believe in... There is such a thing as being bad at math. Maybe right. you had a but, bad teacher, so maybe but I... when you say math, I still, like, do you mean, like, numbers? Like, you want to be able to add and quick do numbers? Or you want some wanna, deeper conceptual to, uh, yeah, understanding I be able to, of math? I want to understand it. I want to be able to actually do some math. Do you understand? Like, I, I numbers come up for me, and I feel panicked—not pan, literally pa- panic, panic—but I just, I immediately go to a place of like, I don't know, and I'm not even going to try because I'm bad at this, and I'm just like, I don't understand it. Mm. I try to do simple kinds of, you know, you've seen me a million times not be able to do math i can't i I just i just think like maybe i could have a teacher who makes it more fun and interesting and i could get it in a way that that i don't and yeah i don't know this feels more like a to me yeah this feels more like the kind of thing is like a psychological mindset kind of shift need here as opposed to like 
Well, like well, something no, but you this, can take but, up to learn. Well, yes, but that's right. That's my point. I want it. I'm. Ta- I want. Maybe it could be a, a growth opportunity for me. Whereas it's like an opportunity for me to get better at something by continuing to work at it, as opposed to just thinking in this kind of binary, like I'm either good at it or I'm bad at it. Yeah, although it's not necessarily binary to say there are some things I, I'm better at than others. That's not binary. That's that's just reality. Like some things I'm better at than others, even if I learn. Like there are some things I can't do. I could take classes and learn to do them better, maybe, but I'm not going to be good at them even if I take classes because I just don't I don't feel a natural a connection to that I don't feel a relationship to that that grows over time so you just have to you have to accept like some things I'm better at than others and the things that I'm better at and the things that I'm not good at or I feel like I'm not as good at at other things I need to find some kind of relationship to that that says I don't have to be good at everything that's what it feels like to me. Like, like like math for you is like one of those things that you you know you learn you learned at an early age, or you told yourself like, oh, I'm not good at that. Although I would say you never failed a math class, right? It wasn't for lack of trying. But my this is, but my point is, <laughs> I, I how came you, really close to failing. I understand that, but you still got through it. So there were people who did fail those classes that you got through. Yes, I'm just saying that I think it would be. It would be uh, it would be um, uh, satisfying for me to revisit something and see if I could take one step further along that. All right. Well, then, then I'll make this suggestion to you. You can do that. Like I just referenced, you can do that on your own without finding a class. You go online and you go to YouTube and you find people who teach this. And there are, you know, there are. I can't oh, yeah. remember, like like uh, like Udemy. There's a, there are all kinds of cool, yeah, but know. but even but yeah, there's all kinds of cool, even cooler than like I think John Green does something for kids, teaches different subjects, and there's like a lot of people that make it really interesting. But my my question is to you: What if you do that and you don't actually get any better, like, and you learn that this is really not something I have an affinity for? Like, will that feel like oh, I've tried and it's okay that I can't do it, yes. or will that just reinforce that I'm really bad at it? Both. Will it make you feel better or worse? Do you think? Oh no, it won't make me feel worse. I'll just even I'll, if you you can't get better at it, like yeah. it's not something that you're capable of getting better at, which is possible. No, not no, I, I, wrong I, with you. no, I never feel worse for having tried something. I always feel better for having tried something. All right, well let's 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 give you the homework assignment for next week. Take find one YouTube video of like thirty minutes even, and go and spend thirty minutes by yourself doing some fun math and see if that sparks anything. See if that makes you feel, oh, well, this is interesting. Or, you know what? Eh, I'm not that interested, actually. Maybe it's something I tried. I, I saw that I really am not that into it. And I'm just going to let it be now. Yeah, see you next session. <laughs> I think I think you should give it a shot and, and report back to all of our, you know, 10 listeners and see if anybody, uh, anybody <laughs> has a similar experience. We don't do this for the money, folks. We do this for the love. And when I say folks, I'm talking to you, Jim, our, our listener in Ohio. And 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 Martha, who lives in India, we're huge in India. Although we're you know not as huge as we used to be, and relatively, we're the proportion of listeners in America has increased. So before we were like ninety percent Indian listeners and ten percent American listeners. Now we're like seventy two percent twenty eight. So we we were growing our following in the in the states in the colonies, as it were. Nice. In the colonies. <laughs> That's funny. Would you support a a uh, 
Yes. You support a California, Oregon, and Washington just becoming a different country. Yes, and I would support the the Paul Bunyan uh, method of doing that. We take a giant saw, gigantic saw, and we and just, just cut this country, cut, it off, cut them off, cut it off, yeah. just saw that shit down, yeah. and go into the in, the in the water. I would too. If you stuck, absolutely that on, would stuck that on a ballot next election, I would. Because because I think this is a nice way to end, because what I said earlier, I think is true, and I don't think it's going to get better. I think America is done. Like, there is no coming back from where we are now. It's, I don't think it's possible. Uh, that might be cynical, or that might be hopeless, but I think it's just the evidence supports it, uh, because the lack of lo logic and rational thought and decency are so far removed now from our politics on the right, and it's not it's not equal on both sides. The left has a lot of people who are opportunistic and, you know, assholes, but it's not the same. It's like it, they're, 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 they aren't equal. The sides aren't equal. One side is completely against democracy. Our side is not against democracy. We're, we fight for what we believe in, and we believe in things that are le more left, but we're not against democracy or compromise. The other side actually is. They are actually against democracy. They're against more people voting, they're against inclusion, they literally are against these basic values. And so there is no, I don't think there's any coming back from that. So I think in the next coming years, we, we do need to think about separating ourselves away. I mean, I think that's just logical. Do you agree or disagree? I don't know if there's any coming back from it. It, does, it doesn't seem like it, you know, something I say to clients all the time is, you know, I, 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 I think I'm safe saying I never say, um, anything like, you know, you'll be okay, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, what I do say is, it won't always be like this. And that's what I would say to you. I don't know if we're ever coming back, but I don't think it will always be like this. It doesn't No, I think it can I, get doesn't worse. Mean I, well, it could get worse. Oh, I think it's saying. definitely going to get worse. That, that's, I mean, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, yeah, I don't know I, if in and, our and lifetimes it's ever going to get better. And I don't know if it's going to get better in our lifetime. Not in our lifetime. I don't think it will. It might if everything gets blown up and we start over. But in our lifetime, I don't think it's going to get better. Because I think, I don't even think we're, I think we're at the beginning of the end. I don't even think we're near the end of the end. The next phase is when all these militias start taking over state governments in Montana and Wyoming. And that's going to happen. That's the voting thing is the precursor to that. Taking over the vote, control of voting and saying voting is not real unless they, it's for us, that is authoritarianism. That's a dictatorship, right? If you vote and we don't like your vote, we just change the votes to us because your votes aren't legitimate unless you vote for us. That's what the Arizonans are saying now. Then this will happen in Montana and Wyoming and perhaps Wisconsin, which used to be this liberal state, now it's not. This is what the next step of all the what they're doing. Because once they replace the elected election officials who theoretically have a responsibility with their own partisan people, there's no more responsibility to anybody but what they believe. And that's that's the road we're on. And that's yeah, terrifying, I, but I it's true. Because that's really scary. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's right or wrong. I think it's just fact. Yeah. Right. And besides that, Mrs. Lincoln. All right. I got nothing else. I, I had this thought about oatmeal, but it left me. All right. I'm going to go pick up my daughter. Where? Where is she? Out in the woods? At school. Yeah, she's did, in the woods. Did the you woods. send her in the woods in like a yeah, survival? With a basket. Yeah, with, yeah, with a basket. Dahlia, I think it's important that you learn to survive. I'm going to send, I'm going to drop you off and I'll pick you up tomorrow and hope that you're alive. Did you do one yeah. of those kind of deals? Yeah. Yeah, that's very big in your family, that whole survival of the fish. The survivalist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, those times that you and your dad went camping and you would sit out in the woods and read like ghost stories and roast marshmallows and make s'mores. What, do you have good memories of that? 
Yeah, that that, that wasn't me. <laughs> we did the Indian guy. We did Indian oh, guides. That's so together. funny. That's not, I'm sure it's not called Indian guides anymore. But no, no. Does that even did, exist? Anymore? You did Indian guide. I think it does. I don't. They couldn't co- possibly call it that anymore. But we did that. Did you? You have fond memories of that. Brad Fuller and I and his dad and mm-hmm. my dad did that together. I can't imagine Brad Fuller's dad Brad and Fuller. your dad just sitting around a campfire chatting with each other. Yeah. That's I mean, Brad I Fuller's imagine. dad, let's be honest, could talk to anybody. He was that kind of a guy. I just don't yeah. imagine your father sitting around that campfire talking to other people. No, he couldn't do that. But I think I threw up on Brad Fuller. That's my memory. on Brad Fuller's dad or on Brad? Fuller? No, on Brad Fuller. I think uh, Indian guides. I think I was. I got. Sick. You know, Brad Fuller had like six thousand polo shirts at that age, so he had a. It, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah, yeah he was fine. he would go to the polo store and just buy every shirt they have. That's my memory of it. Yeah, and and, and they were spaced individually in his closet so perfect, like it was it was unbelievable. I, I have a vivid memory of Brad Fuller's closet for some reason. Yeah, those were the days. Good days. I've got my. The music for Locks in the Bagel is provided exclusively by John Alley. Hey, for Joshua Beckett, I'm Kenny Benjamin. Thank you for listening to Locks in the Bagel today, and we'll see you next time. Take care.